Hi, everyone, and welcome to Strive's How You Lead Matters podcast, where we talk about everything leadership. From tapping into your motivation to filling yourself with grit, we're here to support you as you discover the character-driven leadership in yourself and those around you. I'm Tiff Lockridge. And I'm Jared Smith. We are here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We have one of our, I want to say our Strive family. That's what it really kind of feels like. Uh, one of our guests today is awesome. Uh, mental performance coach. Um, of course, I'll let him introduce himself after a while, but we have Will Lesnar here. We thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Jared, shout out to you. You know how we do here. Um, we're just going to go ahead and get started with you know, like conversation, um, you know, Strive is all about leadership. And one thing that I've learned while being here is like, we emphasize and we often live it out that leadership just looks different in many ways. And leadership is most impactful when it becomes what's central and unique to you. So with that being said, I wanted to just toss off the question to you, Will, like, what is leadership to you? What does What does it look like? What does it mean to you? Well, Tiff and Jared, thank you so much for even sharing this space and this opportunity. It's a pleasure for me. I, I've got um, a profound amount of respect for Strive and the mission and the people. I think it's um, I think it's a really special organization. And so uh, I feel very fortunate to connect with you during this time. I think one of the wonderful things about what Strive is doing and um, the question you ask around leadership is that in my anecdotal personal experience, I think we have a dearth of experience, um, experienced leaders that are being shaped and taught and how to and how to lead in ways that certainly align with, I think, days of old and certainly the things that I believe in. And that is this sense of being able to be others centered. And as you all know, as um, as Strive community members, being other centered is sort of embedded and inherent within the mission. There are a number of people, uh, especially the communities for which I've been working with for the last decade or so, who I think are becoming increasingly sort of more self-centered in large part because they that's what their their mm. personal mission requires and as far as becoming a professional athletes. However, um, I think we have lost as a as a society this sense of of service, the sense of service that that uh, was started. You know, years ago, when the, through the Peace Corps or through other sort of missionary type services. So, I, there's uh, to me, leadership is about serving others and it's about doing the right thing and oftentimes doing the thing that is uncomfortable um, within our, our peer group, for example. You know, absolutely. We can relate to that and it, not even like just within Shrive, but even the spaces that we actually serve in and speaking of what spaces do you serve in what do you do will like let us know let me know let our listeners know this will be our first interaction so i greatly appreciate sharing that little bit with us yeah i'd love to i think um i'll say first and foremost you know i grew up in, in washington dc and and my experiences in dc from a young age at the time you know growing up in dc in the 1980s as you all, you know, growing up in Philly, but at different time periods, both cities have changed over the last two, three decades. And the wonderful thing about DC at the time when I was growing up was that it was predominantly 75%, if not more, African-American. 
And so you had a real, um, although in many respects segregated by communities, you had a real sense of understanding and, um, and you learned the sense of empathy for cultures unlike yourself. So, you know, as we talk about cultural awareness in today's society, I mean, I live in a, in a part of the country nowadays that is personally, in some respects, uncomfortable for me because it is so homogenized. And when you grow up in a place like D.C. and a place like Los Angeles, where I've also spent time, you understand and um the multicultural effects that are so critical to our society and what this country is all about. So I say all that because what it what I've done for the last 10 years runs very many respects different from I think who I was and who I am at, at, at my core. And that is to work with organizations and athletes around not just leadership, but primarily performance psychology techniques and strategies. When you get to a certain point um, in the work at the professional level, it oftentimes can become um, the effect or excuse me, the the driver from people upstairs can become less about people and more about bottom line or about wins or outcomes and things of that nature. And as the three of us know, and, and I'm sure a lot of people who might be listening, it's really about the process and about the sort of the inherent um, intangibles within individuals and groups that makes experiences so special. So you look at the Phillies, you guys might be Phillies fans. You look at the Phillies this year, they didn't dominate the the NL East throughout the season per se, but they had this amazing grit um, and resilience that was possibly shared and maybe developed and evolved through even, you know, the, the new manager, Rob Thompson and, and other folks that are there that they brought in those pieces and they just sort of clicked. And then it's about momentum and things of that nature. When you get into the postseason, it's not about the best team on paper or that they won the regular season. They weren't the, you know, the Dodgers in that sense. So what I'm saying is that um, as some folks in professional sport industries are looking at these things through a computer screen and trying to, um, you know, apply numbers to sequences and actions and movements when they select certain players or get rid of others, the thing that I think some organizations are losing out on is the person, unfortunately, and the experience. And that's where I think uh, my work comes in to try to enhance. All right. Thank you. And and just to put some some names out there, yeah. Will has worked with the Los Angeles Angels, as well as the New York Mets and the Seattle Mariners. So, you know, those are some great teams, as well as some other U.S. Army programs like the U.S. Army Thor program and American Top Team. And some tennis, I believe, as well. Correct, Will? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All around. All around. <laughs> right there. That's well-rounded. Appreciate so, um, that. Definitely. Thank you so much for sharing your story and um, that little snippet because uh, I love my Phillies. I love my Philly teams. <laughs> and yes, yeah. uh, they're, they're, they're what gets me going. What gets me going. And, you know, this postseason, though the wound is still fresh, uh, it's closing it's going to take some time for clo to close but um i think you brought up a really great point about the mental fortitude it takes for a team to kind of even just gather around like they did with rob thompson and hopefully his philosophies and to believe in the things that he was believing and to really just encompass that even on the field and to present that to the fans and players i think there's definitely been times where I saw even Castellanos take some at-bats. And I was like, something really flipped in his, the last couple of games, I should say. Something really flipped in his approach to, you know, hunker down and to have better at-bats. Because, you know, a couple of games during the series, even in the past series, um, 
he was just swinging away and I was mm. like, all right, come on, man. We, we, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta switch it up or something. So, um, in that spirit, I wanted to ask, um, can you tell about a time with your pro athletes where the journey of developing a better mental fortitude helped? Yes. Yes. I think there's, you know, there's, it's interesting. Some of the greatest athletes have a very difficult time sort of functioning in, in our world, in our social um settings and, and and by and large one is because we talked about they've been so honed in on their craft that they just drive at it every day and that and they become sort of insulated in that um and the other sense is that it's really i mean even, even as a staff when you're working with a, a team it's very easy to just fall into this sort of like five-star lifestyle because the players union mandates that the team stay in certain caliber hotels you know, we're flying on charter planes, you're getting food on the plane, you're getting all this sort of, you know, first class service. So it's easy to understand when you when you look behind the curtain, how players can become sort of in this sort of insulated realm. Now, I say all that to, to point out um, that when you are so good, sometimes it is very, you have to be very careful about as the work I do, about how you can maybe help one of those guys um, get to another level. So if you take, um, I had the pleasure of working, not a lot, but a little bit with, you know, Zach Wheeler, who you guys had with the okay. Phillies, with the Mets. And Zach had a, you, you find that like the they, players that are that good, that have got a honed in process. Sometimes it's just, like I say, like you have an old radio, I've got an old car and you're driving across, across Pennsylvania and you're listening to a radio station and then it starts to, and you just sort of turn the style slightly and it catches. It's like that with the, with the Wheeler. Maybe it's a, um, or somebody of that caliber, maybe it's like, hey, I'm dropping a, a, an article or, a, or sending a text message with something, some sort of video message enhanced with that, or maybe I'm just pointing something out to him, or maybe he's coming up and asking a question about something, and you think it's really rote, not really, sort of think it's rudimentary and elementary, and you think, why is he asking this question? But it's actually something that he's been mulling over. Those are the sort of things that sometimes enhance those guys. There's a number of players that you have to reach in a way that has to be sometimes creative, because when it's so intangible, then you need to, as opposed to going into the batting cage and working on your swing or warming your pitches up in the bullpen, you have to find creative ways to get to them. And I would say that those guys who keep coming back for more, and there's a number of them, they they find that, they see that, okay, I see I applied this thing that Will was talking about, and it works. Let me give a little bit more. There's a very sort of internal joke when you start working in professional baseball, which is that um, a guy goes up to the plate and hits a home run. And there's a coach that says like, oh, I just talked to him before he went up to the at-bat. So there's like this sense of like, I take credit. I don't believe that, you know, Kevin Long, I worked with through the Mets. He's the hitting coach of the Phillies. And I think he does an exceptional job. Um, I, I don't believe that any one of us should ever take credit for the performance of any player. There's people, you know, there's third grade teachers who said something or had an impact on on any sort of performer that maybe not be overt in their day-to-day, -day, but it has left a sort of implicit message residue on their sort of DNA that has got them, that has contributed to that, you know? So uh, we're all, everybody that's involved, I think should take credit. No, but no one person should ever, you know, step on the platform and calm their chest. I love that. So there's two points that I'm going to touch on real quick tip that he mentioned, um, kind of a ritual. So at sports challenge, we have a ritual where if something bad happens or if something really great happens that you want to remember, um, I was always taught to have my little ritual so that we can come back and brush it off. It's like a brush, brush it off ritual, you know, the Jay-Z song. 
you know, shoulders, brush your shoulders off. Okay, that happened. Yes, <laughs> come to Sports Challenge if you want to learn more. But um, that's those are one of the things where we actually try and teach uh, our students how to manage those, not necessarily forget them, but how to acknowledge them and move past through them, pass through them so that you can become better either in the fact that you don't get your you don't blow your head up with a bunch of hair hot air like oh I did something well I struck this guy out or I made this three-pointer or I struck out or I missed this goal or I missed the shot really badly something where you can press through and it's kind of like a reset button so uh thank you for also mentioning that and telling your stories with that and then the other part about culture Strive's main thing is about culture, positive culture, and a culture where it's safe to fail. Now, of course, that's going to look a lot different at the professional level, but this is where the foundation kind of starts, where the failure, we want our individuals to fail so that we can build them up better and to fill in those cracks where they did fail so that they can succeed when that time comes up. So thank you so much again for sharing those stories it's really important and for individuals to li- that are listening understand that these things we teach these things at this level because they're important to when people become big leaguers uh nba stars uh mls or soccer phenoms or anything so it's very important that you have those grounding founding levels so because clearly at the professional levels it's very important so thank you thank you what limitations have you experienced? I know like you were speaking about your approach, um, you know, having that form of empathy or you began to talk about having a creative approach um, with certain professionals and athletes that um, it's not necessarily that physical, that tangible thing. It's the intangible. I want to touch bases on that a little bit more because um, what limitations have you experienced in that particular realm um, to the point where let's say for example an individual doesn't have that positive Mm self-talk what happens when a an athlete does not have that or correction has it but needs to develop it more like what do you experience what limitations do you have with that um is it guarded walls is it is it more of sometimes you get a reaction out of them as opposed to response you know uh tell us a little bit more about that it really, it's a, yeah, you guys are so, both of you are very insightful, and that's a wonderful question. I There's a couple of things that I believe in, and some of the folks who do the same work may not necessarily agree entirely. One thing I believe in is what I call a sort of experiential learning, and the extent that um, if any of us have ever had a friend who's an addict or an alcoholic of some kind, there's only so much that we can do. That person has to come to, right? And it's painful at times to watch that decline happen. And it's especially painful transferring it over to your question in performance in baseball professional baseball, um, there were guys who were long established big leaguers who would sometimes pop in and say like, like basically get to a point of being able to tell me that they're terrified they're about to get sent down a triple A or going to get released. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy's delusional. He's he's performing very well. What is this? So you have to recognize that he's got a lot of anxiety or a lot of negative self-talk, as you said, going on with him. And he just hasn't figured out how to manage it and control it or what routine he could apply every day to help sort of cleanse and flush that. Um, everything that you could imagine has happened, I would say, under the sun, where you find these blocks of 
or hindrances or um, whether it's conscious or not by by players and sometimes they will emerge in self-discovery in the most surprising ways from um you know a guy who doesn't really talk to me uh you know early on as we're sort of getting to know one another uh, because he thinks maybe it's a stigma or a taboo or he doesn't want to whatever it is he's still working around that he's sort of vetting me you know he's like is this is will cool part. should i trust him they will sometimes will be out there you know shagging batting practice pregame you know, there's probably what five, ten thousand at most fans out there asking for balls and sign. And so there's a lot of people, and the guy will come over and start to say, "Hey, man, I'm terrified out here." Not in that moment, but when I'm get when I'm in the game, and I'm thinking to myself, "Wow, this is the moment." We've had plenty of moments where you know he could have, you know, we could have talked to nobody else. This is the moment where he's most secure and comfortable out here in the outfield to then at, say this. It's really, it's really palpable. There are other times where. We're rushing to jump on the plane after a game, you know, what they call a getaway day. And so you're sort of scrambling to get everything going. And everybody's, you know, you jump in the shower whenever you can. And there's a guy, I remember a couple of times vividly, guys will say to me, like, you know, he's getting his getting himself ready. Will he well, well, I can't I can't I can't see the ball coming out of the pitcher's hand. We got to get on this. You know, across the shower, there's six other guys in the shower. You're thinking, all right, all right, well, you know, at some point we'll talk about it. Or you're on the plane and that they, you know, guy sits down with you with beer in his hand and he's like, get me out of this funk. Wow. It, it's you have to find, in my opinion, this is the part where I think some people may not agree with me. I call it being, it's going to sound so, I don't know what the word is, if it's offensive or cliche, but being like the 10 at the bar. You are the really attractive person who is not going around asking people for their phone number or trying to start conversations. You're sitting there doing what you do, and you have to allow and trust the process to happen for other people to come up. Because if players feel you, you know, this last couple of years, working with Mike Trout or being on the same team and working, you know, on the daily with Trout or, or Otani, those guys have got, they're, they're so dialed in and there's so many people asking them for so many things, favors and requests and whatnot. And there's a lot of people that, as I said earlier, coaches who want to get their sort of thumbprint on them and be, Hey, I, I'm, I got him to this place that somebody in my role uh, who didn't play at that level, because sometimes players want to, you know, sort of vet people to that extent. I, you have to sort of allow, allow them to come to you or maybe give them some creative things here and there and text messages or videos that sort of piques their attention. The point is to answer your question more succinctly is um, in providing all these sort of anecdotes for it is I don't think there's a foolproof way to answer any of those questions. It comes down to the person and meeting the person where they're at and who they are. And oftentimes that also involves like I'll dig into research on every single guy to find out a little bit about what maybe are some intrinsic motivators for them? You know, what are some personal things that really mean a lot to them? Uh, to, so that when that moment happens, then you've got something for them and they go, wow, this Will did his research. I don't, you know, on me. And that personal connection, that trust can help then open the gate for a lot of them, different things for the actual work to evolve. But none of it ever works until they have trust in you, you know? How was it? All right. So you, clearly you mentioned Otani and me and my friends, we actually took a trip to see him pitch. Uh, when was it? I think it was like over the summer. Sadly, Mike Trout was out, but it's OK. But we saw him pitch. And how are how are your interactions with him? What were your I don't know if you can say your approach to communicating with him in the regards of the mental you know, performance coach that you that's your title and how would you 
how would you go about with those interactions with him? Because clearly he's he's a hot top. I don't even say hot topic right now. He's like a, he's like the topic because he's so good at what he does. Yeah, he's he's exceptional, yeah, and he's a he's rare um, in a lot of ways. I think that with Shohei, you know, he had a, a interpreter, um, Ipe, who was a wonderful human being, and they're both A plus first class individuals. Again, you know the the Japanese media in and of itself every day was always around. Um, COVID limited that a little bit. But what I'm getting at is that um, he was one of those people for whom a lot of people wanted to have their thumbprint on. And so there's only you know a very small handful amount of time, a few times where I might suggest something or ask him a question that I'm hoping to drive some sort of introspective thought. By and large, Shoei had his process so dialed in that I just had to say, okay, if he wants it, uh, you know, he'll come to it. And he would be recipient of video messaging that we would send everybody, things of that nature. And if there was something very specific that I wanted to drive into or maybe have him consider it, then I would say to Ipe, hey, here's something I you know, made for Shoei that specifically and, you know, that sort of thing. Right, because that's like a whole nother level. Like you have to go through another person and kind of manage that person's mindset to get it to Shohei too, because with his interpretation. That's right. And they're always around. I mean, he's, you know, he might be right there and I just say, hey, Shohei, but I got I to say it to Ipe so he can translate it. But yeah, they're uh, they're wonderful. It's just that he had such a robust built-in process, as you can imagine, a guy who's going, going at it from both sides uh, that... I think it was important to be able to just sort of be on the periphery and if and when then you can sort of deliver, but, but not on a consistency because he really had, this is a guy who was, and I think he was probably surprised by a lot of big leaguers who weren't as dialed in. Maybe he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't the kind of guy who judged in that way, but, but I remember he would, for example, when he was DHing and on days he would DH, he'll come back to after every at bat, he'd come back and, and make notes in a journal. And for us at, at Angel Stadium, it's a long walk from the clubhouse actually down to the dugout and then back up. So for him to come up every time and make these notes are the kind of things that might dissuade other players. He was, he was so dialed into his process and he believed it that he wanted to make notes on, I'm sure what he saw from the pitcher and also what he was experiencing in the moment. Right. And sorry to, this is like my last kind of in-depth <sighs> thing is because he developed a slider. Well, the theory is at least in things that I've seen on Instagram is that uh, I forget the pitcher, but the pitcher threw him like a hundred mile an hour slider. And he kind of was like, hmm, I <laughs> develop a slider now. And and then he started, I don't know if that's actually how that went, but it seems just so amazing where those mental notes or not even mental notes, those actual written down notes, which we also do teach players yeah. to do, yeah. it just transforms itself to something else where we're actually seeing it live can you maybe just go off that yeah yeah i think um you know uh it's great it's great that you point out especially the mental notes and there's something you reminded me about something you mentioned earlier about failure that i think is really important he a lot of these guys are so good like uh there's a pitcher with the angels named uh jose suarez who um venezuelan wonderful kid young kid coming up and I, one day we were messing around in the outfield like during BP pregame and he, we were just playing catch and he he took his glove off and flipped the ball into his non-dominant hand and, and rifled what I mean I thought was a 
you know, whatever my my eyes have gotten so old at this point, but like a 90 mile an hour fastball. And I thought like Suarez like that was with your offhand. And he and he sort of looks at me like, yeah, these guys, a lot of these guys, like no kidding. Of course, I know what it is. My point is that um, you know, whether with Shoei's case and anybody else who's developing a pitcher, adding a, a sort of layer, especially with Shoei, who really had it so figured out that he didn't necessarily need a coach. He could have fit, he could have still excelled, in my opinion, and um and achieved this sort of maximum capability. He was he always has an arsenal or or, or a repertoire of things going on that he's he's figuring out. He he's really he's really quite exceptional in that sense. Is that when that thing is coming around the corner, sometimes you don't even know what's coming. I mean, it wouldn't be surprising to me if he's working on pitches, you know, that were unbeknownst to anybody else except for himself and maybe a personal trainer or somebody else that he'd worked with in the offseason. He's that kind of guy. And then he comes in. He doesn't make a big scene about anything. He doesn't pound his chest. He just comes in quietly, does his work, and sort of continues to find ways to step it up. You know, and he and he gets, as you might have seen this season, he gets very competitive and he, and he's allowing himself, I think, to really let it go. And I think that's been probably really healthy in a lot of ways. But I, I want to one of this real quick, and I'm so glad you mentioned this because I wasn't that familiar with this about as far as the strive experience as a student athlete. You mentioned failure. In my opinion. Um, and, and I've got um, this winter, I'm going to give some talks with some some uh, schools. And they say, can you come talk to the athletes? I said, yes, but on one occasion, on one only, I have to be able to talk to the parents. And there's a message that I want to give to the parents and everybody worldwide, essentially. As you all know, and you can see it, um, we are becoming so fascinated with the outcome of experiences um, that we, we pub ourselves and others on social media to such an extent that it creates this deafening sort of uh, sound waves of of, of pressure uh, to an extent. And yet the greatest thing that we can all do is learn how to fail, learn how to fail and compete, not just with others, but with ourselves. And that's my message going forward. And I'm so glad you said that about Strive because it is something that people are not learning from a young age. They're not learning how to fail. And they're growing up in, in these sort of bubbled, insulated worlds where as a baseball player, for example, guys are going to these showcases and they're not learning, they're not, it's like the it's like the NFL combine more or less than going out and competing. This is one one of the reasons why I really believe heavily in martial arts, because of martial arts, if you ever do, especially like a jujitsu where there's constant movement and you're getting in putting put in holds and locks, that you're learning in every moment how to fail because you might somebody might have you in a in a choke and you've got to just breathe and relax and trust your your default skills. Um, it's one of the things that it's why we are, I think, unfortunately, also becoming um losing that ability to really deal with that as well uh in some of these pro athletes is because some of us are trying to specialize so much as opposed to at least growing up in dc we were playing whatever sport we did every season or you know as we as it changed and then also going out and playing in in the parks and now you're seeing a lot more uh, specialized sports and you're not seeing the growth and diversity of people playing different different sports and different experiences so Failure, I just want to say, is wonderful that you mentioned that. I think it's hugely critical for personal development. Failing forward, like that's something that I am learning. I'm learning how to trust the process of things um, and learning how to acknowledge that there is a process. And going back to what you're speaking of, there is this unspoken type of sound that commands and demands proficiency and it demands 
being perfect, being the best at the best without acknowledging the steps that you have to take in order to get to that level. So I just want to acknowledge that because you're sharing a lot of appreciations towards things that I'm just like, oh my goodness, you're amazing. I wish maybe we could finish this over a cup of coffee or maybe some cheesesteaks. Come to Philly, I'll get you one. Yes. Um, but <laughs> it, it's so important uh, for me. Like I've never had an experience uh, with baseball. My grandfather played baseball. He was also in the army and all of that. So I've always been intrigued about the game, but never really experienced it until one time I had to sing the national anthem at one of the Phillies games. And it was like a, a collab type of choral choir. Um, and it was awesome. But that was my first time experiencing a baseball game. Now, my question is, why baseball? You've had experiences in other sports, I, I, I'm sure, and especially with football. And you can literally take your skills and experiences and your expertise over to a sport that is somewhat, you know, most populous. Um, but for me, I became quickly intrigued with uh, baseball when I sat there the whole time. Mm. And I realized just me as a watcher, I had to endure that. Just watching and observing and understanding the game. Now, I felt overwhelmed and I was only like, what, 22 at the time? I felt so overwhelmed, but I can only imagine what it felt like being on that field and having that mental endurance through the game is something that I wanted to know, like, why this sport out of all other sports? What flowers can you give to this area in which you are dedicating your career path in right now? Because you can clearly utilize this elsewhere but why here what is it about this particular sport that intrigues you for you to be the best as a mental performance coach like mm. what, what is it thank you for sharing that experience especially um being on field and singing it uh not a lot of people have that are fortunate enough to be able to go out there and sing the national anthem that's pretty sweet and i always i always enjoyed watching when groups or individuals would come out and just seeing a sense for what they did for their own mental performance game to get ready for that moment. You know, that's always really compelling and interesting to watch. This may sound tangential, but there's a, there's a, a tie-in back to your insightful question. I remember we were in Philly, actually, I was working with the Mets. We were in Philly and there's a lot of time to, to, to build up. And during that time, there's a couple of things that players have to do. One is they sort of get their treatment if they need treatment in the, um, in the training room, or maybe they're going to go prime themselves and get sort of activated in the weight room. Um, and then if they're pitchers, they're going to throw one up their arm. Um, if they're starters, they're on a certain schedule. If they're bullpen guys, you know, depending upon if they pitched the night before, things of that nature. And if they're um, offensive guys, then they go in the cage at some point, twice at least, and, or maybe they take BP in the field. So there's a lot of those different things, but there's a lot of downtime in that. And I remember in 2016 or 17, um, TV was on in the clubhouse, and I'm walking through to my locker, and uh, it was working up towards the presidential. must have been, I can't remember. Either way, the nominees were, were on there. And there was a, a Dominican player on our team who was walking past the TV, and there's a couple of guys watching. I won't mention who they were. And it was it was Trump on the screen. And the Dominican walked by, and he said, man, I can't believe you guys are voting for this guy. And it was the first time I had ever heard, and, and since then as well, the only time I've ever heard anybody speak publicly within the group about what they had an opinion about a certain person and their morals and values. And, and these guys on the couch, you know, sort of, it was sort of playful, but it was also sort of like, that's our guy. And the Dominican was saying, he's not my guy. And, and they're basically saying, well, you don't vote here. So, you know, I mean, 
and so it was sort of playful, but it was also the undertone of what we've we've all seen in um, since then, and and that and at, a, at an emerging pace in many respects going forward. But um, the interesting thing about that in baseball is, in my opinion, a lot of people don't speak their minds on a lot of things. You won't see players the way you do in the NBA or the NFL take certain positions publicly or even publicly within their clubhouse because I think there's a lot of implicit teaching to players as they're coming up to keep your head down and shut up and do the job and just keep plodding along because you can get cut and released and you know the NBA and the NFL don't have those several levels of minor leagues to get up there Dominicans and Puerto Ricans and Cubans who are working their way up as they say off the island are some cases you know getting identified from a very young age and and they're in in some of these um, Dominican communities that you see extremely poor. And so they're saying, I am my only family's hope. I just need to keep my mouth shut and just go up right, and get this and finally sign and get the big league deal. So there's a simplicity teaching of guys to not say anything. So you don't ever see those discussions happening. And when you do sometimes have those discussions, you find that maybe, especially for my case, growing up in DC, um, uh, where I was challenged daily by family and other people to think critically about things and to have an opinion and to be well-read and things of that nature. That, those things aren't celebrated in clubhouses. Um, I, I left baseball a year ago. So um, much to the point of what you're saying, I, I think that I love the individuals, the baseball players. There are certain things about the professional organizational interests that I can't wrap my head around. And at a certain point in time, um, I have a hard time spending 12 hours a day working with an organization that is not committed to some of the same causes that I believe are really important. And maybe those causes are just doing the best they can for their minor league players. I'm not even talking about, Hey, our eco footprint as an organization is not good. You know, those things are really bad on professional sports levels. Uh, you know, the Mariners will fly something like 50,000 miles a year because they're way up in Seattle and major league baseball is now going to set a new schedule going forward next year where every team is playing instead of playing primarily in your division, you're playing everybody across the board, which is going to be great for the fans, but it's going to increase potentially air travel and you're going to have a greater eco footprint in a time for which we can't afford to make these kinds of sort of um, lack decisions, in my opinion, in my opinion, regarding our climate. So all I'm saying is uh, I instead started a dissertation about it, um, a year and a half ago around emotional intelligence and psychological safety among um, professional baseball staffs, which I'm hoping to conclude in two years. And I'm, and I'm, committing myself to other causes for which I think I can be of greater help. Um, you know, for what it's worth, my greatest experience working in the field of performance psychology was working with a select army group down at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I um, had a very different impression of military experience experiences from people that I was surrounded with in D.C. when I was growing up that I was blown away by the humility, the compassion, the leadership of these special operations soldiers down at Fort Bragg who um, were tremendous in so many ways that exemplified humility as quiet professionals, never pounding their chest, um, making a, a very fraction amount of money that these professional athletes are making and yet putting their lives at risk and real and facing real pressure. You know, they sort of laughed at the idea that a, a hitter could have perceived pressure in the box during the World Series. So um, it's all about perspective. And I guess to answer your question, all I'm saying is that yeah, baseball was wonderful for a number of reasons. It was, It is outside of um, the U.S. Army, I think now is the largest employer of mental performance coaches. Uh, 
in a, on a, in a sort of general level, but I think baseball is probably the next largest employer. So I think to some extent it was about um, timing and just sort of opportunity and, uh, and then be, wanting to be around good people. At a certain point in time, some of those good people in leadership positions and organizations that I've been with were not there. And so I said, okay, um, I'm going to pursue this dissertation in large part because of the experiences. And I want to pursue some other things that are potentially going to hopefully um, help uh, other communities for which I believe could really benefit. In your pursuit of all of this, well, I kind of want to bring the focus back to how are you able to maintain the self? It was a few years ago when I was really training in, in mixed martial arts and, and competing in, you know, low level triathlons where I wasn't trying to get, I wasn't trying to place, but I was just trying to enjoy the experience as much as possible and stay as right. fit as I could. And jumping in the ocean is when it's cold with no wetsuit and, you know, really pushing yourself to those, those levels and, and things in life priorities changed having a, having a son um, working a job in baseball where it's very hard to do all those things, starting a dissertation, a doctorate to examine these other areas that are really um, of interest. And so now I'm, I'm able to, okay, shut the door on baseball and sort of reprioritize to do those things. I would say, and I'm so glad you asked it because as we all know, those of us, the three of us on this call who are oftentimes have this sort of empathic priority for others at a benevolence, we oftentimes lack the ability to, you know, and so it's wonderful. I will say, I am amazed when people on social media channels, you know, the people that are like, I do five minutes a day of this. And, and you know, they step by step. I, I really have this belief. It's the idea about what I call being primal. My my algorithm. So I was looking around the first few years in major league clubhouses and I see guys are on their phones. And you think, okay, we've got seven hours or so or six hours, however early they get before seven o'clock game. What are they doing with their time and each other? A lot of them are on their phones. So you'll see guys sitting next to each other at the at the lockers. Yeah, they'll talk and they'll gauge sometimes, but there's a lot of time on their phones because they're managing their own social media, whatever else they've got their they've got going on. People reaching out to them about tickets, whatever it is. They're looking at photos of their children as they're on the road. Um, they're on the phone. So that uh, doesn't feel primal. We don't have really long-term expansive studies about the effects of this on the brain, especially at different ages. You know, an, an interesting anecdote you guys might, I think, would really appreciate is when I was working with the guys down at Fort Bragg, these, one guy came up to me my first week there, and he said to me, you know, I, I, he said, I don't want to talk to the group clinical psychologist because I am afraid that it's going to go on my record and it's going to impact my ability to stay active on the, on the teams and continue to go out in combat. But I don't know who to talk to. And I just need to get this off my chest. And I said, what's up? And um, he said, I, I recently got back from a deployment and I cannot understand how this keeps bothering me. But when I walk through the hallway of the second floor and I see that my son has left his sock in the hallway or that he didn't close his drawer all the way, it just makes me want to jack him up through the through the wall. Uh, and I and I was so it was, again, I was early on for me. I thought, what, what what are we talking about here? And I said, well, how old is your son? He said, three and a half. I thought this is the this is a real issue. This is what is this about that's going on, for which people are having a hard time adapting when they come back for war or just from war. I mean, there's so many things that we could go into detail on that. But the one thing I will say on that is that a lot of these guys, in less than 24, 48 hours, they're back home. You know, they fly out of Iraq or Afghanistan into Germany or Italy or somewhere else and post up there, and then they're boom the next day they're back and they're expected to be a father or husband, and everything just is adapts right. Whereas 
in World War II, um, I read that it took weeks sometimes for guys to travel back and they're coming back across the ocean on boats and they were with each other. So that became their therapy. They were able to really decompress and, and process it. So um, to that extent, I really believe in the community feel. And I think that real community, just by being able to look at the two of you now, and sh you know, we're, in my, my opinion, transmitting sort of um, not just like oxytocin, but other things that versus looking at my phone and thinking I have a community of people here for which but I'm not seeing, I'm not engaging with, I'm not experiencing. It doesn't feel to me primal, this phone. Um, and so the algorithm behind being primal for me is, does this thing, whatever it is, you put you put it into that, that algorithm, if it's using my phone, if it's driving in traffic because I'm getting frustrated, um, did this thing exist when we were first walking the earth, basically? Is this thing primal? Is it aligned with our biological selves? And if the answer is no, it is not. Then I say, okay, do I need this? And if I if I feel like no, I don't need it, but I would like to keep it in my life, okay, fine. But then I'm not going to attribute some emotional sort of um, uh, weight to it. Does that make sense? So it helps to eliminate a lot of things. You go, okay, well, I don't need this anymore. I can push that out. Okay, I don't need it, and I don't. Why am I getting frustrated about traffic? It's not primal. It's not aligned with our natural biological selves. What is? What do we need? We need oxygen, water. We need oxytocin with community. We need to engage. You know, um, engagement and social. Social experiences are critical. Those are those things are primal. And so, to answer your question, uh, when things fit into that box, then it's easy to do, and then we can go do it. Yeah, I want to go go out and be in, be in nature. That is good for myself. It aligns with being primal. I want to jump in the ocean. Um, those sort of things. I want to engage with others. It, and when you when you dig into that, then it really helps. I think I think a lot of people nowadays, in large part because of social media and the phones, are believing that there's some experiences that need to be tapped into in some fashion for which um is not at their fingertips when it, it is all around us it's all around us you know thank you so much will i just want to thank you re re reiterate have you reiterate that so for your personal care you becoming more primal and getting in touch with those things that were here when we didn't have a lot of the stuff we have today that's your personal care yes and and that can align with Okay, I'm gonna go jump in this jujitsu class. That can align with. I'm gonna go jump in the ocean. I'm gonna go for a run. I'm gonna go move heavy things around. Those are the things that we had to do to survive. You know, as we were first coming around. You know, they were things that were sort of natural and inherent with our society. Now, somebody showed me a, a picture recently of of a, a macro thirty thousand view perspective of a city, and they took out all the streets, and you saw like, oh my goodness, look how much concrete is involved in our in our daily lives now. You know, now we have to go leave this insulated world for which we live this concrete jungle in order to just discover what they call forest bathing i mean now it's become a term as opposed to no that is that isn't that is aligned with who we are so yes any of all those things align fits perfectly with it you know i, I don't understand i'm not judging anybody I, I have friends and family who do this i don't understand going to the Cayman Islands and spending time in a resort for a week. I don't, I, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't feel primal at all. It doesn't, I don't see how, I don't see how people recharge, but that's, you know, we're all different. I, I, I I'm, I'm laughing a little bit, but at the same time, that's exactly where I am. Um, is it, it shouts out intrinsic and extrinsic values and how much we're spending time on, on things that, um, probably could really take care of itself if we just left it alone. Um, and whereas others, um, getting back to that innate naturalness of our bodies and stop going against that natural flow, 
going for a walk, going for a run, lifting heavy things and moving things around to make more space of something else is exactly um, where I am. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that I can relate to that. And I hope uh, most of our listeners can relate to that too. Um, you mentioned a lot of things already that uh, the futuristic things that you are working towards. Um, are there any other links or outlets that you can share with our listeners if they desire to whether read up on some of the work that you've been doing or listen in to some of the videos or talks? I'm not quite sure, but let them know if that there's a way to connect with you. Wonderful. Thank you. I, I, I don't, um, years ago, somebody forced me really twisted my arm to say, you need to get a business manager because you don't do any of this stuff well. And so then I had a, <laughs> a robust website and a Twitter and Instagram and all this stuff. And I got rid of it all. And I just kicked mm. open a website. I think it's willtowinconsulting.com, which is, I said to the guy development, I said, look, I'm sure I could do this at home easily. Just give me like a one page something. He's like, that's ridiculous. We got to make it a little bit more appealing. I said, no, we don't. Just like throw a name and a phone number. If anybody, you know, whatever, like, I don't, um, I really don't, uh, there might be some talks or some other things online. I don't, I'm not familiar with it. Um, I'm, I'm really bad in the eyes of a lot of people about doing this. People think that I could be helping my cause financially a lot more if I was good at this. I, I just, I sort of, I've gotten so ugh, from yeah. that whole, I don't like to self-promote. I don't like this. So, um, I will say there's a number of wonderful books and experiences for which I would recommend to people. If anybody ever wants to reach out, um, the information's on the website or, you know, LinkedIn, I think. But um, I'll just say a couple of things to that. One of the greatest books ever for those. And it, and it, it, I don't, I've never said this out loud like this because I think it's such a specific book and it has to reach certain people at the right time in life. But the book is called Way of the Peaceful Warrior by the author Dan Millman. And I have recommended it only to a select handful of number of people, but from the 10-year veteran special operations guide to um, the eight-year-old gymnast. Uh, it's a wonderful book because it is about us. It just takes a couple of chapters to wake up to it. It is about, though, it is about imperfections. It is about sort of our self-talk. It's about um, it's about this, this guy's fiction, non-fiction experience, Dan Melman as a gymnast at Cal Berkeley and he's written other books as well, but this one is the one and it's really about our sense of self and how we can become the person that we, you know, oftentimes don't reach, but we, for whom we should, because people are so worried about outcome and failure and these sort of things and expectations. Um, and that's, I'll lead you into this. My last thought on that is I have three rules for people. Um, the first one is having no expectations because I believe people should set goals and standards, but expectations are things that are largely rooted in what we believe society thinks we should be doing. And there are things that are outcome-based. So then we're losing our effect in the moment, in the process, because we're too much thinking about the failure, the outcome, the future, or the past. The second number one rule is controlling the controllables. And if anything doesn't fit into that, then we recognize it's out of our control. By and large, baseball players and games or out of your control, the umpire might call it a ball, even though it was a strike. I mean, there's so many, the weather might play a role. There's so many things. So all we can do is it really hones us back into controlling what we can. The last thing is, yeah, is at a certain point in time, you just have to say to hell with it. You have to say, screw it. Because it, if I'm thinking too much, if I'm too conscious about it, then 
then I can't just be the, the beautiful, wonderful, artistic athlete performer in any endeavor for whom I know I can be. But if I'm too um, worried, then I get constrained and I get locked up and I just can't flow. And we all know, the three of us know, when, you, when you've been in the flow states, you're not thinking, you're not consciously trying to figure it out. You're just going with it. And the great things happen when we're in that space. Thank you, Will, so much for coming onto the podcast. Oh, it was amazing having you. It was great talking baseball, especially since we just wrapped up. And uh, you were just wonderful in the wisdom that you shared with us today. Uh, Tiff, any closing words? Ah, uh, Yeah. Well, Lesnar, everyone, thank you so much. If you'd like to hear back, first of all, I know you all need to go ahead and rewind this just to the last snippet because he was dropping some heavy gems. So I know you want to go ahead and rewind and actually write that down and start to live it out, guys, ladies and gentlemen. Check us out on the website at striveleadership.org and also continue to follow up on our content on our podcast at Strive How You Lead Matters podcast. Until next time, listeners, thank you. Much love. Tiff and Jared, thank you very much.